Welcome to Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 155 and it's 14th of March 2021. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Good, thank you. Lots of reading. Um, I've read A Test of Courage, which I believe you've also read, Kirsty. is that right? Yep, that's the second High Republic novel, right? Uh, yes, it's the one that's aimed at like a junior audience. I'd guess mm-hmm. like ten year olds, that sort of age range. Um, but yeah, like I really enjoyed it. It was good. Um, and off the top of my head, I can't quite remember the character's name, but there's like a Jedi character in it who struggles like with the dark side. <laughs> and I was surprised that like a novel for junior readers actually went to that sort of territory. And obviously, it's all handled in like a kid-appropriate way. You know, he's not like cutting people's heads off or something. <laughs> But yeah, like I, I was pleasantly surprised by the directions they went in. So yeah, it's an engaging book and I'd recommend it. Yeah, hopefully we can discuss it more in a future episode. But that really struck me as well. I think it explores those elements of the force in a really interesting way and kind of exploring how people's emotions and the, the difficulties that can arise in life can maybe cause you to lose control in some way and and how to find your way back to that stability. Yep, definitely. Really well done. And yeah, I've also started reading Into the Dark by Claudia Gray, which is the young adult High Republic novel, and it's as good as you'd expect. It's really nice. It focuses in on this small gang of characters, um, and the most iconic and best character of the lot so far is definitely Geode. I've heard about Geode. I <laughs> haven't read the book yet. I'm still waiting to get it from the library, but... yeah seeing lots of geode fans out there yeah I, i'm reluctant to say much because i don't want to spoil what the character is all about but I, <laughs> he just brings me joy every time i read it so yeah it's great sounds like a pokemon <laughs> oh my goodness yeah i'll have more to say about geode when we get around to discussing into the dark let's put it that way <laughs> yeah we will get on to talking about the high republic soon guys i know other people have had their podcasts out about it for months at this point we are not the most punctual of pods, but yeah. we'll it's just eventually. how we roll. It's just how we roll. We do things at our own pace. We're like, ah, oh, we fancy doing a sequel trilogy retrospective. Cool. Yeah, I can't even promise that it will be worth the wait, but <laughs> <laughs> but we'll definitely talk about them, and that's what matters. Um, okay, cool. So let's move into the news. Um, so the first thing to report is that there have been two Mandalorian books that have been mysteriously cancelled. Mm. Um, and really, this is just an article from Your Money Geek that's writing up some tweets. And I just borrowed it because it helpfully explains the situation. In a pair of tweets today, Del Rey Publishing and DK Books announced that the Mandalorian original novel and the Mandalorian Ultimate Visual Guide will no longer be published. Adam Christopher's The Mandalorian original novel was previously slated to release late last year, but on July 31st, 2020, Del Rey Publishing announced that the release date had been pushed to fall 2021. In today's announcement, Del Rey Publishing confirmed that Christopher is slated to write a different book that is yet to be announced. So, really the substance is that these books are cancelled is a little bit mysterious as to why. Do you have any theories at all, Kirsty? A couple. Okay. I mean, I do think that what they say... What was it they said in the original tweets? It was like, oh, because the story is being continued in the show. And I, I was like, yeah, that it almost seemed a bit strange to me when they were first announced. I was like, unless it's like a prequel novel, which would have been interesting to kind of see Mando in his life before 
season one begins. Mm. But it wasn't clear what the premise was. And if it was meant to be reflective of where the story's going, we we just don't know that yet. So um, there are probably lots of changes behind the scenes happening. I'm guessing mostly related to Kara Dune being phased out. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I assume that's what they're doing. I, I don't think we're going to get a recast there. Yeah, so. I think they've said that they're just withdrawing the character, basically. So if that yeah. makes sense. So it might also have been an issue of maybe wanting to minimise the that character in the parts that they are already in Mm. i don't i don't know what do you think yeah it's a good question um i found the original tweets which i'll just read out for context um and the wording is due to the ever-expanding world of the mandalorian we will no longer be publishing the mandalorian original novel at this time as the story continues to unfold on screen I definitely agree with you in that I think it's probably related to lots of stuff being shifted about because of Kara not being used as a character going forward. Because it really sounds like at some point prior to all the Gina nonsense, Kara was going to be quite central to their plans, you know, for future storytelling. So it does sound like she was meant to be the lead of the Rangers of the New Republic show. And... Yeah, I presume all these shows were going to be interconnected, you know, and eventually converge again. So if the storytelling in the novel and if what was covered in the reference book were going to be alluding to what was going to go on in Kara's series and also had prominent parts that were about that character, it just wouldn't be viable to put them out as they are, I think. Yeah, there was something about the phrasing of that tweet that I found kind of funny because it it sort of applies to anything in the Star Wars universe. You know, things are always evolving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they still continue to pump the content out. So. I think it's a diplomatic way of saying, ah, there's lots of reshuffling going on at the moment. And yeah, we just can't commit to saying what the story is anymore. So yeah, yeah. we're putting these on the back burner for now. Yeah, I mean, really, it's not even going to be that long until we get more stories in that corner of the universe. Because... Is Book of Boba Fett going to be out in like October, November? I believe so, yeah. I think and hope it's this year, because if it's not, then it's a long, long time to go without any new Star Wars um, visual material. I think they had a date on the the credit scene, right? Yeah, December. So it's coming in December. Mm. Yeah, it's quite a while, but again, as you say, it's going to be a quick year. I think if we're lucky and if society does resume after the pandemic... <laughs> then it will go really quickly because we'll be suddenly wanting to jam in the many, many things we have not been able to do for over a year. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we'll all want to stop watching telly for a while anyway. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Enough staring at screens. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I want to go outside again, please. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, it sounds like the books aren't definitively cancelled because I know it will be disappointing for people and I personally really like the visual dictionaries. So that's a real loss, unfortunately. I love all those little um, arrows pointing to things and those cute little labels that Pablo does. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think these projects will both be resurrected and hopefully all the work won't be completely wasted because, yeah, I do feel bad for the authors in these situations. Yeah. It sounds like he's already working on something else with them. And maybe it is Mando related. So Yeah. No, definitely. And I'm sure they're compensated according to what they were originally meant to be doing. 
Okay, cool. So let's move into the second thing we want to discuss before the meat of the discussion, which is going to be about Rise of Skywalker. Could you explain the situation that came up during the um, Disney Investors Call, Kirsty, which is quite amusing? Yeah, so there was a Disney Investors Call on the 9th of March, so a few days ago now, and they have a Q&A section at the end, and I always figured that they screen these questions before allowing people to speak, but I guess not, because there was someone who started asking about when Kathleen Kennedy was going to be fired from Lucasfilm and replaced with Dave Filoni, which is obviously one of those big rumours going around in certain parts of the fandom for a long time now. Um, and anyway, this was Disney CEO Bob Shapex's response. We look forward to having Kathy directing the activities of the entire Lucasfilm operation for many years to come. And he was, in general, very complimentary of her. <laughs> Like you say, I cannot believe that they do not screen these questions. Maybe they do, and he just like somehow got through. <laughs> because yeah, they've got to surely. Yeah, maybe he said he wanted to ask about something else, and then he like farted out that question. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty embarrassing to listen to. It was so cringy. It's like, gosh, this poor person has clearly just been consuming like a non-stop diet of angry YouTube videos and. Yeah, like it's funny, but it's also sad because people genuinely buy into this stuff. You know, they really, truly believe what these rumor mongers tell them about how all oh, Dave Filoni and John Favreau are about to come in and save the day. Um, and it's like Kathleen Kennedy is just completely demonized in this discourse. It's kind of fascinating to me. She's turned into this like monster that hides underneath your bed, kind of. And yeah, it's just the intensity of the misogyny and the hatred directed towards her. It's like comical almost because it's so exaggerated, but it's also scary. And I, I honestly admire Kathleen Kennedy a lot for persisting, you know, in that role. Because I think some other people would have been like, I just can't do all this bullshit. But yeah, she clearly doesn't let it get to her. So good for her. I have issues with a lot of the things that Kathleen Kennedy has kind of been overseeing and managing and you know we we are not afraid to kind of talk about those issues that we have with you know things like diversity and that on the on the show but that doesn't seem to be the angle here it is just like as you say that stuff that has just festered on YouTube and kind of spread out from there that she's the reason for all of the problems and somehow isn't part of any of the things that people personally enjoy in Star Wars, even though she's just as responsible for those as she is responsible for the sequel trilogy and and all the rest of it, everything that's come out under the Disney era. So it's just kind of bizarre um, that, yeah, she's just the convenient scapegoat for whenever they don't like something, it's because of her. And whenever they do, it's because someone else is working behind her back. Yeah, always a man trying to undermine her evil influence. It was this one combined with another question that someone got through with about, oh, you know what they've been doing with the whole Gina thing and like, <laughs> oh, there's now a conservative blacklist and why wasn't Pedro Pascal fired for his political tweets too? Ugh. <laughs> Sorry. The answer to that one was actually pretty good, especially if it was off the cuff, which I guess it must have been. He was very diplomatic and like, you know, Disney doesn't see itself as a right-leaning or a left-leaning company. We just have values of respect and civility and treating people with decency. And the underlying thing there is, of course, that someone wasn't upholding those values. So yeah. 
No, yeah. exactly. I think people lose sight of the fact that Gina Carano was an employee and employers have rights to terminate employees' contracts if they feel the employees behaving in a way that reflects badly on them. Mm. And that's clearly the situation <laughs> with Gina. And yeah, it just doesn't get through. I wonder if this is going to be this watershed moment where people just start bringing in their personal grievances with... Because in a way, I'm I'm almost glad that this crap has risen to the top because maybe they'll have to acknowledge it and start to deal with it. Yeah. Um, that this entire web of conspiracy theories has just been, been growing. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's all tied... Well, I mean, people know. We've talked about it before. It's all really a vehicle for something larger and much more dangerous yeah i'd actually um point people towards the rewriting ripley pod um they've put out a really fascinating long-form article that explores like the question of the backlash to the sequel trilogy and the whole fandom menace movement that's built up around it and yeah it's a really deep deep dive so you need to put aside some time to read it is worth giving it that time because it shows you how it's so much bigger than people being angry on YouTube. You know, it's part of this long lineage of like anger and like political action, like at the very top, that's just filtered down and down, and it's become like really insidiously pervasive. To be honest, it's also very much about how it's been like in overly inflated in its importance like these people have successfully made it seem like they are the voice of fandom when they're really really not and fandom is much bigger than them and yeah I think that's one of the most important narratives to counter because those people do not represent the entirety of fandom and yeah it's dangerous that sometimes they are perceived that way Hmm. yeah I guess that's relevant to what we're going to talk about today as well because I don't know I there are lots of mixed feelings about how that kind of stuff ended up playing into the direction that the sequel trilogy took. I have my doubts about some of it and how direct that was or whether it was just kind of... In certain cases, I think it was maybe unintentional. Mm. Um, it's really hard to know for sure, though, isn't it? And obviously, we're never going to get a clear answer on those things. Um, but yeah, it's definitely worth a look and a listen to the podcast because... Uh, it's something that has come to dominate a lot of fandom discussions and debates. And it it's a shame because apart from obviously all of the real world harassment and fallout that it creates, it spoils a lot of the enjoyment of fandom discussion that's just, you know, whether or not you like a movie and why not. Um, and to be clear, because I've already seen a lot of people misinterpreting that article and being like well I just don't like a movie and it's like well then that's not what we're talking about you know it's more like it's a Trojan horse for it's it's a way to get people to be like well it maybe it's not just a movie and maybe it's a vehicle for all of these things these evil things like feminism and it's basically the sequel trilogy has become a huge dog whistle yeah, it weaponizes people's disappointment in a story into something that's much more dangerous. And I'm I'm torn on how much impact it is going to have in the real world versus, as you say, how much of that is actually overblown. Mm. But it's it's definitely unpleasant and dangerous and has impacted a lot of people's lives. Yeah, especially a lot of people of color and women involved in Star Wars. Um, you know, that's their professional lives, and um, they're put in danger. And as we saw with Kelly Marie Tran it had an impact on her ultimate role and 
and the character that she played and and real impact on her mental health so yeah exactly it's definitely something that deserves attention so i'm really glad that rewrite and ripley are putting that spotlight on it especially in the face of the inevitable backlash from the quarters that they're speaking about so yeah massive kudos to them Mm. um okay cool but it's time to move into our the rise of skywalker discussion so we can start out with a listener email from nick which i thought was a lovely way to segue into the discussion we're going to have would you be able to read it out kirsty mm-hmm. i wanted to send a quick message and say that i'm really enjoying this latest series of pods your show is so good oh thanks <laughs> and offers analysis on star wars of a caliber that i don't think you can find elsewhere On the point of criticism of Rise of Skywalker, I understand your hesitancy and your mindfulness in not wanting to be a downer for those who like the film, but I wanted to say, and have been meaning to tell you since last year, speaking as someone who came away from that film feeling almost nothing, and finding myself for the first time not liking a Star Wars film, listening to your show and all the analysis you did was really cathartic. It was sort of a confusing time, wondering if there was something off about the film or if there was something off about me. As a lifelong lover of Star Wars, there's just no one I've ever met who's interested in talking about Star Wars in this level of detail, especially in the way that you do, which deeply examines the character motivations and conflicts, which for me is a major component of my love for the series. So in terms of The Rise of Skywalker, it was so great to hear others who had a similar reaction as I did. The casual fans around me mostly thought it was kind of fine, but for me it was a huge letdown. Walking through the story in detail was the best way to come to peace with the film. Your show is extremely helpful in that regard. Now that I'm at peace with it, there are bits that I can still enjoy. This is all to say I'm looking forward to the next episode and all of this critical analysis is what makes the show so enjoyable. Best, Nick. Thank you, Nick. That was really lovely. Yeah, it was honestly such a pleasure to receive this. So thank you so much for writing it. Um, Because, yeah, you do just have a bit of questioning, I think, sometimes when you're going into a discussion like this one because you really don't want to undermine anyone's enjoyment of something you know you don't want to like make a good thing bad for them you know but at the same time you also want to be honest and truthful about your own perspective on said thing so yeah I I think what we're gonna do is try and find that right balance where we're like honest and we try to explain things like in a way that really seeks to get to the root of it as much as possible um but yeah like also like acknowledge those parts of the film that we can look at and we're like oh yeah no i enjoy that because yeah those parts are definitely there yeah i think we have maybe i don't want to put words in your mouth rachel but for me i've kind of been on a similar journey to what it sounds like nick's been with the film in that i was really disappointed with it at first um didn't really feel much almost like i remember coming out of it at first and just kind of feeling numb because Mm. it's just so such a lot and yet doesn't add up to much for me emotionally um but over time and as I've kind of like let it percolate over the last year and like we just had this rewatch there are little things that I enjoy about it so I can talk about those but almost like in isolation because they still don't add up to a satisfying um great movie for me but I know that a lot of people love this film and that's great you know I definitely don't want to um ruin that for anyone and I don't even think I have the power to ruin that for anyone (laughs) yeah but by me saying I don't enjoy it that's not taking anything away from someone else hopefully so um if you like this movie and you're still listening to us well thank you very much um 
that would be a bit of a surprise to me at this point because we have been quite <laughs> negative about it uh, but hopefully no one thinks we've been mean and we definitely don't we're not interested in peddling any conspiracy theories about you know ill intent um, there's certain things that i'm disappointed with and we'll get to them about how things were handled especially around rose and kelly but um i don't think there's this grand overarching conspiracy that jj abrams and chris terrier are secretly colluding with people who peddle that sort of stuff that we were talking earlier you know yeah. it's it's just i i think they simply maybe have similar tastes in what they want from a star wars movie yeah you know so you don't want to project too much onto the reasons why that might be yeah and i feel like something that might not be acknowledged so much is that a part of me sometimes thinks that in tross what you're seeing like the parts of it are definitely responding to things in The Last Jedi, such as the whole character of Dominic Monaghan, <laughs> which I'm going to stop because otherwise I'll go into a rant. Um, but I think a lot of that film, it's responding to criticisms of The Force Awakens as much as it's responding to criticisms of The Last Jedi. I think so too, which is sort of fascinating. <laughs> it is. I honestly think that JJ might be a little bit too sensitive to his critics. I know there was lots of discourse about The Force Awakens being a remake of A New Hope, blah, blah, blah. And I understand where that comes from, even though I disagree with it. But yeah, I think JJ needed to hold on to the fact that he made a really good, solid movie in The Force Awakens. And most importantly, introduced some really fantastic new characters who were going to take the franchise forward. And I feel like that's what he lost going into Tross. You know, he lost faith ultimately in the characters that he created. That and that's the part of Tross that's most disappointing to me. Yeah, I I agree. I think the thing that confuses me about that is that I'm not sure JJ's even fully conscious of that. And I don't. Again, I don't know the man, so it's like you kind of are making up a rationale for why certain things happened. But um, he has said in interviews, like, I don't really get why people like The Force Awakens so much. And I'm like, hey, I like that film. <laughs> don't speak ill of one of my favorite Star Wars films. Guy who directed and wrote it. That makes me feel sorry for him. He doesn't seem to have an awful lot of confidence, which is sort of strange when you get to that level of status in your career. But I suppose it's, you know, it's how you feel on the inside that matters, yeah. no matter how many accolades you have and everything. But um, yeah, I, I, I can't help, you know, with you have these two directors and, and writers together, it's kind of hard not to compare the approaches to the franchise that JJ and Ryan have, right? And, you know, Ryan is obviously very aware of the fact that some people don't like the choices that he made in his story, but he's very confident in them. And I think he's actually said the parts that people seem to be most disappointed with are the parts that I'm most proud of. <laughs> and he sticks by them and he has reasons for why he'd made certain choices and he can speak about it at length and really passionately and in a very calm way, you know, he doesn't mind if you dislike them. Um, it's just you know that's the story that he chose to tell and he has a reason why um, so Ryan does seem to me as someone who doesn't know either of these people more confident in the choices that he made yeah. Um, so yeah that's just something that I can't help but pick up on yeah no I'd agree with that but what you said about um, how JJ should feel more confident in the, the new characters that he created I think he was around the time when the force awakens came out you know he said like of course i did recognize that there were some similarities but we had this challenge of bringing in all these new characters to this world that people love so much 
So he seemed proud of them then. And then even in the Skywalker... Is it the Skywalker Legacy documentary, the one that came out? Yes. With the Rise of Skywalker's special features? Yeah. He says something about how this movie is about those new characters and they're not being beholden to the legacy. So I think maybe that was still his goal. It's just a kind of a case of whether each individual audience member believes that he met it. And I don't think that we do. I think um, it does seem like the legacy, not just of those older characters, but of the entire saga and history of Star Wars as a property kind of ended up weighing things down, unfortunately. Yeah. I think to like get this started on the chronology of things, um, it's important to start off where it began. And with episode nine, it's obviously a very complicated situation because originally Colin Trevorrow was writing and directing. And we do actually have the whole Trevorrow script. It's out there. We have concept art. So we have a good sense for the film he was going to make. But in preparing these notes, I very consciously did not incorporate any of that because in my view, it's just a whole separate discussion and it's a completely different movie. Um, do, do you think that's fair, Kirsty? I think it's fair. And also, I don't know how much I'd have to add because I've never read that script. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, for complicated reasons that we went into at the time, Colin Trevorrow was given the boot. Um, and instead, J.J. Abrams was rehired. So this announcement was posted on stars.com on 12th of September 2017. So before The Last Jedi came out, that's important to note. Yes, exactly. Before The Last Jedi. Um, so yeah, I'll just read it quickly. J.J. Abrams, who launched a new era of Star Wars with The Force Awakens in 2015, is returning to complete the sequel trilogy as writer and director of Star Wars Episode Nine. Abrams will co-write the film with Chris Terrio. Sorry. Um, Star Wars Episode Nine will be produced by Kathleen Kennedy, Michelle Rejuan, Abrams, Bad Robot and Lucasfilm. With The Force Awakens, J.J. delivered everything we could have possibly hoped for. And I'm so excited that he's coming back to close out this trilogy, said Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy. So, yeah, I remember at the time this felt like really good news and it was a massive relief after like you know Trevorrow and worrying about what he would do because <laughs> we didn't actually know what he would do at this time you know when he was given the boot but based on his other work I didn't have a good feeling about it so yeah my overriding memory about JJ coming back was being relieved same yeah I mean as again you know this was before The Last Jedi came out so we were just kind of thinking about the sequel trilogy in terms of the force awakens and you and i both love that movie so it was good news for us and as you say we were going on trevorrow's existing work which neither of us love yeah so i'd also very recently seen book of henry which is like... <laughs> <laughs> wow i'm not gonna forget that in a long time <laughs> oh yeah yeah uh... <laughs> sorry i don't want to turn this into duncan on trevorrow uh, suffice to say we were pleased <laughs> yeah we were pleased and um you know i didn't know a lot about chris terrio i'd seen argo obviously which he won his oscar for enjoyed that movie um i read somewhere that he did his undergraduate dissertation on virginia wolf and that interested me mm. um so you know i didn't i didn't have much to go on there but i, I just figured okay jj's co-writing again with someone else this will work out um and at the time like we knew obviously jj had been credited as um executive producer on the last jedi and there was just kind of this kind of perception that him and ryan would have been working together closely on the story yeah um which i don't think is how it worked out in reality but <laughs> that's what we all thought might be happening yeah 
no, and that's definitely one of the biggest criticisms, and I think justifiably so, the fact that there just wasn't that conversation when that really needed to happen. Um, okay, yeah, so then it was quiet for quite a long period, to be honest. There really wasn't much going on. Well, because it was all about The Last Jedi, wasn't it? Yeah, it was all about The Last Jedi. And obviously, like, we barely noticed anything about episode nine or the lack thereof because we had, like, 50 podcasts just talking about The Last Jedi. A slight exaggeration, but still. I would be curious to know when they started actually, like, conceptualising for... Because obviously they'd had Trevorrow's draft, but it sounds like they didn't keep really anything from that. Mm. Um, When did they start writing in earnest? And how much was taking shape before The Last Jedi came out so that they couldn't they couldn't respond to the criticism of that movie. I honestly think that they would have started writing before this announcement came out because it was clearly right. a done deal that JJ and Chris were writing the script together by that time, you know, by September. So I'd guess maybe they'd been working on it for a few weeks. So the thing is, the decision to let Trevor go was only made like a short while before this. I think it was made in August 2017. And I'm sure that there were discussions internally, you know, about, oh, this isn't going well, we need to replace him. And they'd probably approach JJ well before September. But I think in terms of actually getting started on the script, I don't think it was that long before the announcement. And yeah, that's another reason why I give them slack, to be honest, because episode nine started filming on 1st of August 2018. And relative to when we can roughly estimate that work on the script started they had less than a year to write that script and that is really not long you know when you think about what a massive undertaking a star wars movie is so i do have sympathy for them you know so it was this enormous pressure and working in a very pressurized way so yeah like it, it was a difficult task for anyone to be honest yeah i think the obvious solution would have been for them to push back but um Disney needed to make their money. So. Yeah. God, please, those shareholders. <laughs> really, in an ideal world, that would have been what happened. Because we know for a fact they approached Ryan about coming back for episode nine, and he would have done it if they could have given him more time to write the oh, script. Oh, is that a fact? Yeah, I yeah. thought that was just a rumour. Okay. Yeah, no, I believe he said that on record. Oh, okay. Or if he hasn't said it on record, I believe it came from like a reputable source, you know, like one of the trade papers. Okay. Mm, but yeah, it's just a pity. Like, I understand why, like, the business side of the company would have wanted it to meet the date, but quality suffered. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Sorry, I've been salty already. Gosh, I need no, to stop I just, that. You know, that is as much a, a sympathy vote for them as well, because they must have felt under a huge amount of pressure. And yeah. I know that JJ is more prone to in- encouraging improv and stuff and, you know, changing things on the fly during production anyway. But it would have been almost a necessity because they probably didn't have a lot of stuff set in stone. And you can kind of tell from the documentary they were making these decisions as they were going that were pretty, pretty big plot points that were just altered as they were going along. Um, Yeah, that's always going to create something that feels a bit more chaotic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, yep, then the next really official thing that came out was on 27th July 2018, which is basically news about casting and news about the start of filming. Uh, So, yeah, could you read out that quote, please, Kirsty? Yeah, this is from StarWars.com. Episode 9 will begin filming at London's Pinewood Studios on August 1st. J.J. Abrams returns to direct the final instalment. Abrams co-wrote the screenplay with Chris Terrio. Um, All the returning cast members... Um, with 
Naomi Aki, Richard E. Grant, and Kerry Russell, who will be joined by veteran Star Wars actors Mark Hamill, Anthony Daniels, and Billy Dee Williams, who will reprise the role as Lando. The role of Leia Organa will once again be played by Carrie Fisher, using previously unreleased footage shot for Star Wars The Force Awakens. We desperately loved Carrie Fisher, says Abrams. Finding a truly satisfying conclusion to the Skywalker saga without her eluded us. We were never going to recast or use a CG character. With the support and blessing from her daughter Billy, we have found a way to honour Carrie's legacy and role as Leia in Episode 9 by using unseen footage we shot together in Episode 7. A lot of that footage actually was seen. <laughs> by the observant fan. I just <laughs> going I to the collector's it. box set with the extra deleted scenes. <laughs> Sorry. I've just been a big nerd now. Never underestimate a droid. <laughs> Oh my god! And it's honestly like that knowledge, you know, that deep knowledge of what was cut with Leia means it's like hard to watch some of Leia's stuff in Nine because I know what the original context was, you know, for what Carrie was actually performing, and it makes it very hard to take it as it is in Episode Nine. You know, when I know that, for example, when they're talking about Palpatine returning and like Leia makes a comment about, "Oh, he was always in the shadows watching." And we know that that was originally recorded for Force Awakens, and like she was basically talking about Snoke being in the shadows, like grooming Ben, um, mm-hmm. but that was deleted. And yeah, now it's just about Palpatine. So <laughs> I've got to accept that. I've just got to stop being salty. Um, but yeah, again, like reading this, it does make me feel sorry for them. You know, I know that they were all sincerely broken up about Carrie. You know, and it's, it's such a difficult, like choice you know like what do you do in that situation i feel like they did a good job like as much as they could have you know with what was available to them but yeah it's just tragic that carrie wasn't actually there to play an actual part that was written for her with the finale of the trilogy in mind i think they probably did as best they could with the actual footage they had of her Mm. the stuff that's added is confusing to me some of the choices there almost seem quite tasteless but ultimately what matters most is is billy's approval of it and and she seemed happy so exactly yeah no i take comfort in that and yeah also this underlines what we were saying about um like lots of new cast members as well which is a point we've brought up before um because like naomi aki richard e grant kerry russell and obviously billy d was in the originals but it was the first time he was appearing in the sequel trilogy that's like four actors like who are new to the sequel trilogy in this film and yeah it's just a lot and I feel weird saying that because I think they're all really good and Naomi Aki in particular is a really like wonderful presence you know she's so charismatic you know and she's just got such a wonderfully expressive face but yeah I just feel none of those characters could be done justice you know because it was such a packed narrative as it was and they all just like end up being cameos kind of yeah the oh i guess we'll get into it later but yeah i agree in general that there's just there's a lot added at the last possible second yeah um and it's just a kind of a question of were all of these characters necessary or could you have kind of done something with the characters that we already had and maybe they were supposed to be kind of foils to those but none of that feels truly explored there's a lot of half-baked ideas in my opinion yeah Exactly. And some of them were like good ideas, but they just needed more like encouragement to bring them out. <laughs> but yeah, we'll get into it. Um, 
Okay, and then very intriguingly, and one of my favourite aspects of like the pre-release period for episode 9, because it's just so like, what? Um, is that on 28th of August 2018, there was an infamous report in Variety, which is obviously a reputable trade paper in Hollywood, um, saying that Matt Smith was going to be in episode 9, because that was a thing. Sources tell Variety that the Crown star Matt Smith is joining Star Wars Episode 9, which is currently in production in the UK. It's unknown at this time whether the Doctor Who alum will be on the side of the Rebels or the Evil Empire. And, yeah, th- this is like such a sticking point for me, so I'm desperate to know what this was all about, and I really hope we get an answer one day. Yeah, I was telling you earlier that my theory was that he was originally going to play Ray's dad in the flashbacks Mm. but um you think he was maybe some kind of acolyte for Palpatine yeah I might be placing too much stock in potentially dubious internet rumors (laughs) to um say that but yeah there was a report to that effect which we'll go into briefly later I think because he he looks like he could be a young Palpatine so his failed clone (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's true but then there was also an interview of richard e grant i think in the radio times where he kind of alluded to the fact that he was working with matt smith Mm. so maybe in another version of the film richard e grant's character i can't remember his name uh general pride pride that's it a wonderful name makes it down to exegol and actually like joins up with palpatine's acolyte and I don't know. Yeah. No, it's all very possible. And again, I think this goes back to what we were saying about the script being written in such a compressed period of time. Because we do have some sense for the different iterations of the film from the spoilers. But I feel like it was a different film again. You know, if you go back further into the production when they were in the early days of filming. Um, And yeah, it's all just fascinating to me. I'd love to see the script that they actually had like in August. You know, because presumably that's the script that would have this character who would have been played by Matt Smith. Or it's total BS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's variety. And I just yeah, know they, they would make it up. just get something wrong. No, not necessarily that they made it up, but they must have just got wires crossed or something. Maybe yeah. he was in very early talks earlier on and, and then it ultimately went to someone else. Yeah, that's potentially true. Or maybe he is just like Ochi underneath all that makeup. <laughs> uncredited Matt Smith didn't want to take the credit for playing the icon that is Ochi but that sure is him sorry I'm just being dumb now Uh, okay cool um yeah and then like I have a quote here but we don't really need it because we were actually there when this happened so in at Star Celebration in 2019 on the 12th of April specifically they showed the trailer for the film for the first time, the like earliest first trailer. And I can't even remember how it goes specifically. Um, well, no, actually, I remember it starts with Ray in the desert running from Kylo's TIE fighter. Um, but the most notable thing about that trailer is that it ends with Palpatine cackling. Mm. And yeah, tell me, Kirsty, what are your memories of that reveal when you first heard that laughter? I was shocked. But because um, I know there have been rumors flying around, I was not taking them seriously at all. Mm. You know, I think it was was it Christian Harloff at Collider. He was convinced that Palpatine was coming back. I was just like, whatever, <laughs> you know, just ignore it. You think yeah. that? You think that? Yeah. Um, so maybe he did know something after all, or he just got lucky with that guess. But it, yeah, it was a shock to hear the cackle. Obviously, great to see Ian come out on stage because yeah. he just seems like a really cool guy. 
Um, and then I think in terms of the trailer itself, I was left a bit uneasy with the whole no one's ever really gone thing. Because mm. I was like, that's a pretty important line said to Leia in the context of her losing faith in her son. Yeah. And they used it to obviously mean someone's back from the dead, which seemed kind of cheap. Yeah, it's a bit crass, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and now, <laughs> this is obviously not Star Wars itself's fault, but that line is kind of taken on a life of its own in the fandom in terms of like, every time someone comes back from the dead, now it's Boba Fett. Oh, no one's ever really gone. It's like, that, <laughs> that meant something to Leia and Luke. Yeah. It's that and that picture of Poe in the control room, like an Oscar Isaacs just looking like he's done and he's like somehow Palpatine has returned. <laughs> People use that all the time and it always brings me like a spark of joy. So I'm glad for that meme. I do remember Daisy saying in an interview, probably much later than this, that it was all going to be explained in the film how Palpatine's back. <laughs> it's oh, just Poe saying somehow. And the thing is, I'm sure it was at one point. And again, we have spoilers that show it was explained more than it ended up being explained if you get my meaning um so daisy like probably did have memories of recording explanatory stuff so she was being honest according to what she remembered from the filming but then obviously it didn't matter because it wasn't in the film so. well to be fair there's the stuff about dark side cloning it's not yeah. that the explanation isn't there it's that it's just, it's just really... hopelessly inadequate it is, but again, it's like, if this was a good movie, would it matter to me the specific reason why he was back? Would it work? Would I just, like, suspend my disbelief like I do with every other Star Wars movie if it just worked emotionally? And <laughs> because it doesn't, I'm prone to nitpicking. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's the problem with Tross in a nutshell, isn't it? It's also, like, the way it um, recontextualizes certain lines, like, um, you know, that he's died before. And then he knows how to prolong his life and bring himself back from the dead based on that scene from Revenge of the Sith. That always seemed to me like Palpatine was just pulling Anakin's leg and he didn't really know. He was just kind of leading him on so that he would fall to the dark side. <laughs> and now it's like, oh no, Palpatine had a plan all along. You know, <laughs> It's the ultimate master planner, bless him. So. Oh my gosh. Um, okay, and... Yeah, so that was it for Celebration, really. It really was all about that trailer. Um, they also had like a Mandalorian panel and stuff, but we didn't get into that, boo. Um, and another thing I want to talk about briefly in relation to the run-up to Tross was like there was a complete dearth of spoilers for a long time. And there would be the occasional report, but there wasn't much in like until August when the floodgates opened and the whole movie was leaked, basically. Um <laughs> The an early rumour that we had that unfortunately turned out to be completely inaccurate um, came out in April and basically this is where I get my idea about Matt Smith being a Sith acolyte and working for Palpatine because it was this whole thing where Palpatine possessed Matt Smith. I'm sorry, I'm just going to call him Matt Smith, okay? <laughs> um, and yeah, there's like lots of body hopping and stuff and it ends up where Palpatine is trying to possess Ben's body and take control of him. And, like, Ray, like, she has to kill Ben, basically, to kill Palpatine as well, you know, and obviously it's emotionally difficult for her because they have this connection. Oh, man, that is so Buffy and Angel. I know. I remember there being lots of excitement at the time about this rumour, 
because then there were like follow-up rumors that suggested Ben might be resurrected after Palpatine was destroyed. And it's like, oh my god, that'd be so perfect. <laughs> and yeah, when the actual spoilers came out, it's like, oh no, can't we have the old one? <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, even when you're reading reports, it's like there's no guarantee it would actually work on screen or look good. Of course, it's just, yeah. That sounds like something that would appeal to me more. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds more emotionally satisfying, you know, because... Yeah, because the idea of him um, possessing Ben, you know, he's been manipulating him his entire life and now it kind of comes to fruition right this is what it's all been leading up to he's actually going to take his body and and have, give him absolutely no agency that seems like an ultimate end game right yeah so that would that would make sense for that otherwise that element of the story is almost dropped <laughs> yeah it's one of my criticisms of the how the rise of skywalker treats ben after he's good again is the fact he doesn't really do anything when him and Ray face Palpatine. It's basically Palpatine being like a petty bitch. It'd be like, oh, I was once thrown over a steep cliff edge by a Skywalker, so now I'm going to throw you over a steep <laughs> cliff edge. <laughs> and, yeah, and that's it, you know? Like, And I think this, obviously, it could have been like awfully horrible, you know, in terms of how it was executed, who knows? But if something like this were ever in the plan, at least it feels much more emotional, you know, and it feels much more tied to the like arc of the characters' stories, you know, makes it much more like stake heavy, which I like. And yep, on swiftly on the hills of that particular rumor, there was the Vanity Fair coverage. Um, and my main recollection of this is being very excited because the covers were really beautiful. So they were both um, Kylo and Rey in the desert. And yeah, just like sunrise and sunset, I think, behind each of them. And mm-hmm. they were just really beautiful images. I still cherish those copies. They're very nice. Um, and yeah, like I feel like it was mostly about the covers, though. I feel like the actual story inside wasn't too revelatory. You know, we didn't get much information from it. Am I recalling it wrong, Kirsty? I don't remember a lot either. Yeah. I do remember the, the covers and feeling that they looked very romantic. But yeah, the actual substance of the articles, I can't really remember. Yeah. I do remember there being lots of annoyance in the fandom because I think Joanna Robinson tweeted about there being some like real significance to the covers, you know, in terms of them having some like extra layer of meaning and people were coming up with these really elaborate theories about what the covers could mean. But I think ultimately, like it was just said, is literally like Kylo has a sunset and Rey has a sunrise or something. <laughs> Which is just, that's the immediate takeaway from those covers. It's like That's not a hidden meaning, that's just what's on the covers. <laughs> Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, oh, it's funny. Maybe she was alluding to, like, oh, if the sun's setting on him and it's rising on her, it's her who's the rise of Skywalker. Yeah, which it turned out to be true. So if you did yeah. take that completely literally, then yeah, it's a huge spoiler for what happens in the film. <laughs> I think a lot of us were just holding out hope at that point that it wouldn't be that on the nose. And then it was. Okay, so then... The big moment came in August 2019, so a few months after the Vanity Fair coverage, um, when essentially huge spoilers from the film started being posted to Reddit. Um, The really reliable ones came from someone called Jedi Paxis. Um, I have no idea what his source was, although one suspects it's someone with within Bad Robot, you know, someone with like close access to the film, because they didn't just leak the film, they leaked different edits of the film. It's got to be someone really high up, surely. Yeah. What are they playing at? I know. It's bonkers to me, to be honest. Um, I feel like what they might have done 
is screened different edits of the film internally for people at Bad Robot to get their feedback, you know, and like, oh, how well is this working? You know, because obviously a normal film would have test screenings for members of the public, and they're not mm. going to do that with a Star Wars film. So I feel like they might do those things internally, like for the sake of seeing how it's going down with the audience. Um, Because, yeah, like, otherwise it's like, who is it? Like Marianne Brandon or something? (laughs) Like a bit bored during the editing process and like drops Jedi Paxis an email saying, oh, hey, hey, mate, here we are. This is what we've done today. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I don't know. That's the explanation that makes most sense to me. It does track with, because, you know, he, for a long time, was convinced that Ben just kind of disappears once he falls down the pit. And then at the last minute was like, oh, they kiss. Oh, yeah, we're going into that. Yeah, but that reflects what Daisy said about um, that making it into the the edit at the last minute, because JJ was showing her various cuts and she said that she'd prefer that one. Yeah, no, that's true. I do feel like if they were doing that thing of showing people within bad robot screenings, I I do think they probably edited it so that there was nothing of Ben after he was thrown off that cliff because they didn't even have him like crawling back to rain, saving her life. You know, that wasn't like part of the spoilers at any point until December, but there's all sorts of minutiae and we cannot go into all of it because there's just so much. But what I thought would be helpful to do is go through some of the aspects of the leak where they reflect how things used to be in the film. Um, Because obviously everyone knows how the film is, you know, and I think it's more interesting to talk about what the film used to be in these earlier versions that are reflected in the leaks. Hmm. The first report of the full film, like as in like a beat by beat plot, plot breakdown, came out in August, um, at the end of August on the 30th. Um, and yeah, it's extremely detailed. <laughs> I, I, like I must say, Jedo Paxis is a very fastidious person, so k- kudos for that. One interesting thing to know about this particular version is that in this edit, the film started with the flashbacks to Luke and Leia training together, which I think is a really interesting thing because I just cannot imagine that working. <laughs> How do you feel about that? I'm not sure. I don't think the the opening of the movie is particularly strong anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's fine. I, I don't know. I think just starting with a flashback, I feel like that's so alien to Star Wars somehow. Although Rogue One did, so. I don't mind if something's new to Star Wars. That doesn't bother me at all. Mm. I think it's just how it would... If, if it's going to be exactly what we saw in the movie in, in terms of Luke and Leia, then that probably wouldn't work. But if it's going to give more of an insight into Leia's choices and how that would have a knock-on effect, I think that would be kind of almost a a cool, like, fairy tale prologue, you know? Yeah. No, I, I, that makes sense. I think if it had been expanded upon, it could have had some real weight. Um, but yeah, let's not hear it wind in the end, sadly. So what does this... What does it say? We begin the action by seeing one of, if not the final training lesson between Luke and Leia. So it probably is very similar to what we got in the movie. Exactly. It goes on to say, Leia is giving up her Jedi training due to the fact that she's pregnant with a son. My source on this mentioned a fight, so I believe that we may be getting Luke and Leia in a lightsaber duel towards the beginning of the film. That's interesting to me, so it indicates that maybe there was originally dialogue between like past Luke and past Leia. You know, covering that point about I'm expecting a baby, like I can't keep on doing this anymore. Because in the actual film, that's just Luke's narration. You know, you don't hear the characters speak in the flashback. Again, I think that would have helped me because that whole part of the film, I was going to mention this later when we actually talk about 
the the movie itself and what we take away from it it still confuses me i still don't understand leia's motivations yeah for a lot of what she does in this movie so yeah no there are all sorts of weird hijinks going on (laughs) so if i could hear it from her it might help but we'll never know i would have liked to have seen the script for that um yep and then a lot of people know this because there's been a great deal of concept art of this scene leaked um, but originally the idea was that Kylo obtained the Wayfinder from the Oracle, which is like a horrible monster thing. Um, and yeah, they just say that Kylo obtains the Wayfinder from the Oracle and finds it to contain the coordinates to a point in the Unknown Regions. The Wayfinder that Kylo is given once belonged to his grandfather. So that's a bit of a gratuitous detail. I don't think the film needed that, but it's like cool, I guess. Who knows how I that think... would have been communicated. <laughs> Well, I think I would have preferred it again if it was clearer at the time that Kylo was on Mustafar. Yes. Maybe in the grounds of his grandfather's castle, and there was something connecting him to Anakin. Because as it is, there's just nothing really. Yeah, no, that's true. It does just seem like a random red planet, doesn't it? It's like, what is this place? Yeah, it's it's very odd. <laughs> and yeah, so then he goes into some detail about the initial conversation between Kylo and Palpatine. Which is interesting because it seems a bit more coherent to me than what we actually ended up with again. So it's kind of frustrating to read these leaks because some of it does seem to make more sense. Um, <clears throat> but according to Jedi Paxis, Kylo and Palpatine's conversation apparently centres around ordering Kylo to find Rey and bring her to the Emperor with the goal of turning her to the dark side. His goal in luring Kylo to him and converting Rey to darkness is more or less to have Rey and Kylo inherit his new empire and for them to rule it together. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just I'm very confused on what Palpatine's plan is in general. <laughs> I think Palpatine in the film is too. I guess at this point, because early on you get the sense that he's meant to be aware of the dyad. Yeah. So maybe that would be reason he'd want the dyad to be the at the helm of the new empire. Yeah, that's exactly what was the case actually. Um, I have quotes about this later on, but Jedi Paxis came back with even more detail and a scrupulously annotated um, PDF document uploaded to the cloud um, that I have a copy of. And yeah, it goes into a lot of depth about Palpatine's motivation and how he was basically luring Kylo in to help him, which I find really interesting because that stuff is very much absent from like the final cut you know is a bit mysterious as to why kylo goes along with palpatine at all and i know it's not he's not really fully committed or anything but it just seems to be like oh you'll get a big fleet if you join me (laughs) (laughs) and it's like uh, he already has a big fleet (laughs) exactly i'm not sure where i see the appeal here so yeah it does frustrate me that they cut out all this stuff about palpatine explaining the connection to kylo and suckering him in that way because yeah it just makes much more sense to me but yeah i do think there are reasons why they got rid of it but i think they would have been better off adjusting the rest of the film to reflect that motivation rather than just removing the motivation yeah i'm not sure how you would present any of that first order versus final order thing that would make more sense Mm. Because it is just, ultimately, because he was in control of Snoke all along, it is just kind of like the First Order was the front <laughs> for the Final Order. <laughs> but there's no discernible difference, really, in terms of them both being bad for the galaxy. So <laughs> it's very confusing to me, that whole thing. Yeah, they're both just villainous factions. 
Like I, I have no hope of making that stuff make sense, basically. This is purely about why would Kylo cooperate at all? <laughs> yeah, there's not enough work done in the world building to, to make those differences discernible and meaningful to the audience, in my opinion. Yeah. But you're right in that it, uh, maybe something would have at least gone further to explain Kylo's thoughts at that point because he is a bit of a closed book throughout this movie yeah then honestly for the great bulk of the plot breakdown after that point it's very accurate to what we have so i'm not just gonna describe the film to people because people have seen it um i wanted to read out this bit describing the fight between ray and kylo on the death star because it's interesting how you can see how much is lost in translation you know like from spoilers to actually what you get so could you read out the part starting naturally they fight, Kirsty? Hmm. Naturally they fight. The specifics of this duel are unknown to me, but what I have been told about is that it's at this point when Ray begins to tap into some hatred to gain the upper hand and eventually defeats Kylo. Note, possibly destroying his lightsaber in the process, but that's more rumour than leak at the moment, leaving him for dead on the wreckage of the Death Star. Ray takes possession of Palpatine's Wayfinder and leaves. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, like, like it is accurate, things. but it kind of makes like Ray seem like completely heartless. Basically, she kind of is, honestly. I, not towards Ben. I think there's. I, I don't fully buy Ray in this movie. <laughs> I think her motivations are very strange. Yeah, she just yeah. pieces out and leaves Finn there. So yeah, no, like obviously that that stuff just doesn't gel. Like that doesn't work. But I think you know, like the absence of the healing like Ben aspect you know that is so fundamental to the whole point of that scene and yeah again like that just doesn't come through I've no idea it honestly I think it would have been described if, if Jello Paxis had been told that Ray heals Ben in that moment yeah so. she says he, she specifically leaves him for dead she does leave him there but he's already been saved at that point yeah exactly she doesn't like heartlessly abandon him to like a slow painful death so yeah so I know that paragraph in particular made a lot of people very upset at the time understandably because yeah it sounded bad she takes the wayfinder but it's the one that um kylo has and she did, i don't know, know if she even knows that it's in the tie at that point she just takes the tie yeah no i think that's it because luke kind of points it out to her and she's yeah. like oh there it is <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness um okay so <laughs> Uh, I want to go into the Luke thing because it's so transparently obvious that the Luke like ghost encounter on Act 2 was completely reshot mainly because of Mark Hamill's really bad wig which is always <laughs> funny to me every time I rewatch the film he just looks a bit drunk I'm sure he wasn't he was probably sober <laughs> but you know you can just tell he's like not in the zone you know he's not committed like he was in The Last Jedi am I being mean Kirsty? <laughs> Uh, definitely not like he was in The Last Jedi. <laughs> I thought you were saying that you're definitely not being mean, Rachel. No, you're definitely not being mean. I think Luke maybe is having a drink or two in the afterlife. <laughs> Why not? He deserves it. Yeah, exactly. Gotta let loose at last. No, no, no more of those stupid Jedi rules to abide by. Yeah, so I'll read out the description here about the Force Ghost thing. So, on the subject of Force Ghosts, Luke makes another appearance around the time of Rey and Kylo's crises of faith. Back at the main resistance base, Leia is on her deathbed. My source describes it to me like Yoda's death in Return of the Jedi. Nothing bad happened, it was just her time to go, which is how it goes down in the film and it makes no sense, but whatever. Um, mm. Luke has come back to say goodbye, but before it all ends for Leia, he has one final lesson for her. So, that's interesting, because... 
like it's not made explicit there but my impression is that originally there was a moment where Luke like basically teaches Leia the lesson in how to be a force ghost you know how to influence things from beyond the grave um but yeah who knows how explicit that would have ever been because that description is as vague as anything okay because I sometimes like some of the leaks kind of um I don't know if this is just me completely making it up but sometimes I got the impression that Luke was like teaching Leia how to reach Ben so that they could all journey to the afterlife together I don't know that makes sense. Do you get that perception? Sometimes I think that's what's meant to be in the movie. It just doesn't really come across. Yeah. I would like to think that that's what they were going for. You know, and it's so vague that you can read like that into it easily and it'd be valid. So, yeah. Let's say that was the plan. And in a way, it kind of is what's there. But like you say, it's so poorly articulated that you can barely tell what's happening. It's hard because I almost feel like... Um they're kind of almost trying to mirror the fact that the audience knows that Carrie has passed too. Mm. It's very strange because she lies down, but then she's not really gone. She holds on and waits for Ben. So does she know that she's going? Like, just what? Yeah. Again, the the motivations of the characters are very strange to me. It's all very muddy. Okay. And then we have another bit about Palpatine talking to Ray and explaining things to Ray. So, yeah, do you want to read out what I've highlighted, Kirsty? Palpatine confirms that what Kylo told her was true. Apparently, after his defeat at the Death Star, Palpatine was shaken by the fact that he wasn't able to maintain his hold on Vader or seduce Luke to the darkness due to their familial bond. During the course of their conversation, Palpatine makes reference to the bond between Vader and Luke and likens it to his bond with Ray hoping that whatever familial connection they have will be enough to win her over and become as strong as that of the Skywalkers. <laughs> Why is that not in the movie? Yeah, again, it's a silly plan, but at least it's something. Like, I cut, It's still on my rewatch. I was like, why is Palpatine not... He does do the whole, oh, I've been waiting for my granddaughter to come home. But like, if you're trying to get Ray on your side, who has been yearning for family her entire life, wouldn't you play the sweet old grandpa role? Yeah. <laughs> no, it would have been much better. Um, and apparently, originally, the idea was that Palpatine would be like in a bed, you know, like like very visibly frail, rather than on a crane. <laughs> yeah, rather than on a crane. <laughs> Which honestly, I find that kind of gnarly in a way. It's stupid it's so and dumb, but I, I like it. And I also love the fact that Ian McDermott loved it. You know, there's <laughs> quotes out there from him saying, "Oh yes, I had a whale of a time. I love heights." <laughs> I love you, Ian. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's stupid. But yeah, I feel like if they'd played into this sort of thing, you know, that idea of like a really twisted family dynamic, you know, that Ray's been confronted with, at least that would have demonstrated commitment. Because as it is, it feels like the whole Ray Palpatine thing is just so underbaked, you know, and it might as well just not be there. It's very strange. Yeah, it is interesting because ultimately he just kind of threatens her friends and he positions them as her new family. But what he could have done is like had her choose between him and Ben, right? Yeah. Like, do you choose your grandpa or do you choose the dyad? And yeah, do you mm. choose this boy? <laughs> 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 oh my god, that would have given me some real kicks. Um, and yet, then most infamously of all, which um, you alluded to earlier, Kirsty, 
Um, at some point, the Emperor overpowers them both and supposedly kills Ben. Note, there have been reports from other reputable le leakers that Kylo kind of, sort of dies. But my source on this seemed pretty unambiguous. <laughs> Personally, I think we'll just have to wait and see what we learn over the next few months. When it looks like all hope is lost, the ghosts of Luke and Leia show up to aid Rey. Together they overpower the Emperor and end his darkness once and for all. And all I can say in relation to that is thank goodness that Ben did come back because that would have been the worst death ever. Like, I'm still not happy that he died, you know, like I would have preferred him to live. But, you know, at least he dies with some dignity, I suppose. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> maybe in theory. In practice, I think it's pretty bizarre and undignified that he just kind of falls back. But what's screaming at me here is the idea of Luke and Leia showing up. It just reminds me of um, the problems they had with The Force Awakens, where it was like, well, you're going to have Luke show up and save the day at the end? Because mm. that kind of overshadows things. And that maybe that is the reason they chose not to do this ultimately in the end. Because while we do have our criticisms of the actual ending where Luke and Leia show up, that it again brings it back to the legacy characters rather than the newer ones, this would have been that times 100, really, wouldn't it? Yeah. It would have been way, way too on the nose. Like, I feel like I still like have serious problems with how Rey defeats Palpatine, and there's the queasy feeling that she's just turned into like a bit of a vessel for the Jedi, you know, with how she destroys him. But yeah, like at least it's less on the nose than literally having like images of Mark and Ca Mark and Carrie stood next to her. You know, it's like no, I do not mm. do not want. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, okay, then I don't want to linger on this too long, so I know we've just been through lots of the spoiler stuff, but how to explain this? So between September and November 2019, there were periodic updates as the film was being edited and changed. And these are just really interesting because they provided much more detailed, in-depth insights into how things were meant to go down at a certain point. Um, and I've actually seen a lot of discussion about like knowledge of the Force Dyad and where did Kylo find that out? Um, like that's been a big question on Twitter today, and yeah, in view of that, I wanted to read out the bit where it goes into more detail about Palpatine explaining the Dyad to Kylo. Could you read out what I've highlighted, Kirsty? As Kylo descends, he passes by giant statues and finds an old man near death and lying in bed and being tended to by cloaked aides. Palpatine is apparently vertical on this bed. Does he mean horizontal? <laughs> I feel like he must mean vertical because I feel like the natural assumption is it's horizontal. That sounds like he's describing what we do actually get then. Yeah, no, that's true. And I guess it could have been like a misunderstanding of what they were seeing, you know, I guess bed, crane. What's the difference? Well, in the first part, it kind of does look like almost like a casket thing. It has that... Um that frame around him okay yeah i need to go back and watch it again i think I the lighting really is obviously it's meant to be intentionally dark and he's meant to be hidden from kylo for a lot of it yeah the old man identifies himself as darth sidious kylo initially dismisses the old man knowing that the emperor had died over 30 years prior over the forest moon of endor feeling that this must be a trick kylo claims that there must be some other explanation such as this man being a clone my sources specifically tell me that the palpatine refutes the idea of him being a clone and affirms that he survived his fall. After his defeat at Endor, he left the known galaxy and travelled to the unknown regions to rebuild his empire. Despite his scepticism, Palpatine begins to reel Kylo in, 
and subsequently tells him of something known as a force dyad. The force produces two incredibly strong users, and when they unite together, both become stronger than either one could be on their own. Palpatine believes Kylo Ren and Rey to be the two halves of this dyad and shares this knowledge with Ren. Palpatine claims that he seeks the dyad because he is weak and dying and wants the dyad to rule together once he's gone. Palpatine orders Kylo to bring Rey to him and turn her so that the dyad will be a strong, unified force of darkness. So basically it's an arranged marriage, are you? I mean, yeah. Like, it is kind of what we get in terms of some of the imagery there at the end, even though at that point Palpatine doesn't seem to have any awareness of the dyad until he's literally leeching off its power. Yeah. No, so again, I, I do prefer this like explanation, you know, of the dyad and like where that comes into it. But at the same time, I can understand why they moved away from this. I, I bet you anything they probably thought was too confusing to download all this like exposition on people so quickly, especially when they're already getting lots of ex- exposition about Palpatine being back. And I think it's also a question of Kylo's loyalties and what's motivating him. All they do is push that exposition to Kylo later on. <laughs> I know. There's a lot of explaining things in this movie. It doesn't make it any less confusing. Yeah, I know. But I, I think that's probably one of the reasons why they justified it to themselves. But yeah, the whole thing with Kylo explaining it to Ray later on, I think they do that so they can have the thing where Kylo's initially allied with Palpatine. But then like you basically come to understand that he actually has his own motives and like wants like to be with like Ray separate from the whole Palpatine thing and that's because he knows about the Force Dyad when Palpatine doesn't which obviously contradicts this original explanation so I think they did it as a way of illustrating the divided loyalties you know and the fact that Kylo has all these ulterior motives for going after Ray. Yeah I think what's confusing to me about that is that Kylo already wanted to be with Ray, and he didn't need the excuse of the Force Dyad Maybe he was trying to convince her that she needed to be with him. I don't know. It's because of the dyad. It's not because I'm desperately in love with you. Well, and the thing is, that whole... Getting sidetracked here, but one of the problems I actually have with the movie, as it turns out, is not just about the dyad itself, but it's more about how Kylo's initial proposed to her, to her in The Last Jedi, that it's like, oh, you come from nothing. He's never really challenged on those perceptions because it turns out that Rey actually comes from somewhere so that's why she's important and he never has to apologize for the way he presents that to her yeah because because his perception his worldview is validated by the story itself <laughs> he's like oh you're the daughter of Palpatine the son and I'm <laughs> slain that. oh no no make it stop <laughs> oh my god um and yet another thing from these updates is a much more detailed explanation of what Luke said to Rey before the scene was completely reshot, which I find interesting, so I'll just read this out. The ghost of Luke Skywalker appears to Rey, holding the weapon she just discarded. Luke's conversation with Rey is said to be encouraging, yet realistically grim in tone. Luke knows firsthand what it's like to face Palpatine and that it's not an easy task. Rey must confront Palpatine in the same way that Luke once had to confront Vader. Luke encourages Rey by telling her of the faith Leia had in her. She saw the potential within her and hoped that Rey would be able to restore balance to the Force once more, just as Anakin once did. Rey supposedly asks to speak to Leia at one point, but Luke responds by telling her that Leia has not yet completed her training and he cannot yet feel her distinctive consciousness within the Force. Oh god, yeah, she's still dying, Rey. Give it a few hours. (laughs) She's waiting for her to get through the system. There's a little bit of a backlog. I, again, as you said, it is quite funny, just that entire interaction because of Luke's just entire demeanour and presence. But um, 
there's a funny part where Ray seems so shocked that Leia still saw the good in her. It's like, do you know who their dad was? Yeah. Obviously you do. <laughs> but that would have been the natural point for Luke to go, hey, do you remember Vader? We don't think here that just because someone's related to someone else, that makes them automatically bad. That's not a thing. Yeah. And again, I do prefer what they have here. And I know like the grass is always greener, you know, it might have been executed in a really bad way. Who knows? But I feel like there's much more like emotional substance here, you know, of like Ray asking to speak to Leia. You know, I like that because obviously she had this contentious relationship with Luke, whereas Tross establishes at the beginning that Leia has been mentoring Ray for about a year, you know, and they have this close and supportive relationship. So I like the idea, you know, of her like pushing back on Luke because in the film it's just her very passively accepting his advice and being like, oh yes, okay, I'll go for the fight party. Yes, I'll clap as you raise this X-Wing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, and yeah, like just something very quickly, I won't even read it out directly, but originally the plan with the ending on Tatooine was that um, Finn and Poe, and I think Rose as well, although the specific names of the characters aren't mentioned, and Jonna, actually, sorry, I know I keep on adding people now, they were all meant to be there with her on Tatooine at the end, basically, so it wasn't going to be that final shot of Rey just looking out onto the two sons with BB-8 beside her, and it pisses me off that they changed that, because... I would never have liked the whole Ray Skywalker thing, you know, but it would have been so much better if we'd at least seen Ray surrounded by her friends in that moment. So, yeah, I'm annoyed with them for that choice. I think it would have even been preferable to, if you had to have that end shot of Ray walking off to the sunsets, for her friends to still be there kind of looking on. Yeah. You know, so that you knew that because of course there's been this endless debate in the fandom where people are like of course she's not going to stay there it's like yeah we know we know it's not literally that she's there forever alone (laughs) but it's where the movie chooses to end things and if you contrast that with the end of return of the jedi luke is surrounded by all his friends and he's happy and he's he has the ghosts looking on but they're not his only company yeah so yeah it does strike a quite different tone obviously works for some people but but was disappointing for us. Exactly. Yeah, I don't want to dwell on this, but it's also worth acknowledging here that we didn't speak about any of these spoilers at the time. So I think it became quickly quite apparent that there was a lot of substance in these. And anywhere I think we'd made a choice, you know, we're getting quite close to the movie. We don't want to like report spoilers anymore, you know. They were extremely detailed. If we'd mentioned them, we would have had to almost go into the whole thing and then we'd just be talking about the movie. Yeah. <laughs> No, exactly. But yeah, another memory from that time is that, understandably, many people just didn't believe them, largely because they didn't make sense, which is because <laughs> of the, a lot of the movie didn't make sense. But we want to know that, and we all naively had a lot of faith and trust in JJ. I was watching on in horror almost because people kept making Ben falling down the pit into like a jokey meme on Twitter, yeah. and I was like, you're spoiling this for everyone. Yeah. Do you know that you're spoiling the movie for all your friends? Yeah. <laughs> they were treating it like a joke. I was like, uh, pretty sure he's going down that pit, guys. <laughs> yeah. I honestly remember feeling really queasy around that time, to be honest. And I think especially the first time I like read the spoilers, I think it might have been like when I was on a lunch break from work. And I was honestly just in such a funk, you know, I couldn't concentrate. No. Because, yeah, I was like, oh, fuck, that's it, really? Um, and obviously parts of it weren't as bad as were reflected in the spoilers. Parts of it were a little bit worse, to be honest. Um, but 
but yeah, it could have gone worse. So I take comfort in that. I remember being in denial because Rose was just not mentioned at all. Yeah. And that was my big like, wait, where's Rose? And and Lando was super minimal as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I tried to like rationalize it to myself by saying that there's clearly lots of gaps. There's lots of connective tissue missing. There's lots of nuance missing. You know, thinking back to the Force Awakens leaks, which didn't reflect the experience of watching the movie. And the leaks for Trost don't either, you know, I'm going to be fair, you know, the, the emotional stuff doesn't come through at all because that's just not what leakers are good at capturing. And I also remember there was that person who was like actively on Twitter posting alternate spoilers, like they were all extremely Raylo positive and she had a huge following and I, I really felt for people when she was obviously outed as a fraud and there was so much like heartbreak and disappointment. Yeah, I guess the perception of something being Raylo positive is a bit confusing to me because I, while I don't like the movie, mm. it's it's Raylo positive. Oh yeah, no, I agree. But um, you know, like, but this person was like uber uber like on the Raylo train. You know, it's like all their leaks pretty much were about Raylo <laughs> stuff. I think. Well, sorry, what do you mean though? Because we get Raylo in the movie. Well, I guess ha- happily ever after Raylo. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. Um, but yeah, just refuting the whole idea that Ben died. Mainly. Um, oh, I see. I'm refuting Ray Skywalker. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would sound tempting to people, I guess. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, based on that, you can understand why people wanted to believe this person. But, yeah, it didn't make what they were saying any more accurate. I wasn't following them, but I kept seeing them just kind of posting cryptic gifts. So I didn't think they were actually saying anything. Yeah, but I think how it worked would be like people would like ask her questions and stuff and, you know, people would inevitably ask like, oh, do we get like a happily ever after with Ray and Ben? And it would be like a positive gif and that sort of thing. Oh man, that's just someone messing with people. I know, it's cruel. I I sense it was probably like a shipper who was trying to make people feel better, but that's a very charitable um, interpretation. Maybe it was just someone who wanted to wreak havoc and sow the discord. Thus in the past, the account has long since been deleted. Probably never know who was behind it. And (laughs) we we have Tross. So, oh yeah, one last thing. So with the reports, there was a very last minute clarification just before the film came out from Jedi Paxis on 10th of December 2019, which finally addressed the big question of did we see Ben again after he was yeeted over the cliff? Um, this is the critical moment of the podcast, Kirsty. so could you read out the relevant part, please? Palpatine apparently disintegrates and explodes, <laughs> causing the arena to crumble. This is where new information comes into the picture, but also killing Rey. Ben apparently climbs out of the pit, finding a dead Rey, and decides to give his life for her. He uses the healing trick to save Ray, but draining his life force in the process. Then, there's a weird fanfic moment where they kiss and he dies. <laughs> I love that out of this entire movie, that's the part that strikes them as fanfic. <laughs> it's like, ooh, icky. <laughs> you know, it's that sort of vibe. Yeah, there's never been a kiss in a Star Wars movie before. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I must say that gave me a great deal of comfort going into the film. Because before I read this, I was honestly straight up just reading it. I was like, oh no. Because <laughs> it was so clear that Jello Paxis was accurate that I'd almost given up hope on seeing Ben again after the whole cliff incident. So mm-hmm. yeah, when at least we got to see the smile and the kiss and stuff. And yeah, the falling back and dying is dumb, but hey ho, like I, I, <laughs> I can live with it. At least he came back for a little bit. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like him dying, okay. 
No, it's like, I don't even like the way that scene is framed or yeah. shot or anything. The performances I can't fault. Yeah. Don't don't blame Adam and Daisy. It's just some of the, the choices. I'm like, why did you go with that angle for that? Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about how we felt about the film upon its initial release. Of course we have several podcasts on this topic, including one that lasts four hours. If you want the full <laughs> experience of our raw emotions about Tross. I think a lot of people listen to that who'd never listened to us before. It must have been a pretty negative introduction to us. Yeah, no, I'm always amazed when I go back to like the listener numbers on that episode and I'm like, good grief. Well, <laughs> I guess there was like a need for like explanation almost. And we do try to explain it, you know, it's like a very detailed like beat by beat breakdown of what that film is. So mm. yeah, and I'm honestly glad people have found that helpful, you know. Because you record a four-hour-long podcast and you especially edit a four-hour-long podcast. <laughs> and you think, who's going to listen to this? But then people do. And yeah, it's nice. Yeah, I think it was helpful for us as well to just kind of go through it all. And what is interesting about that is that it was before all of the stuff came out that was like um, extra explanations that aren't in the movie itself. Mm whether they were from the novelization or elsewhere like people talking at lucasfilm or jj oh it was chris terrio really giving a lot of the interviews afterwards wasn't it yeah um all of this stuff that maybe was in their intent or was once upon a time part of the movie but then didn't make it into the final cut and we're just kind of going through what's actually there um so a lot of things just did not make sense to us and still don't to be fair i guess but yeah if you if you want to hear our unfiltered reactions you can go back to those episodes <laughs> Exactly. Um, and just for people's ease of reference, the episode numbers are episode 127 and 128. So yeah, enjoy. Um, but yeah, <laughs> we are going to briefly recap on what those initial feelings are. Um, and yeah, we're not going to go into great detail. But yeah, my first note in the episode notes is ah, um, which yeah, kind of captures it. How about you, Kirsty? What was your first reaction? It was weird because I think I was just crushed by that ending oh. of Ray with her story ending with her alone. Because, mm. you know, she was someone I'd really identified with as someone who'd like longed for companionship from the beginning of her story. Yeah. Other than that, though, in as I was watching the actual movie, I didn't really feel anything. It was very strange because I was like, I've been really excited to see this movie for two years and it's not working for me. Yeah. And everything that should have been working for me it just it wasn't it wasn't impacting me emotionally i didn't feel connected to the characters obviously it was the actors that i love giving these performances but there was just some kind of disconnect um and aside from that i was also very confused by what the actual story was like whether it was the pacing or a lot of the the things that they had like the wayfinder and the knife and all of these things like explaining them i was like i don't understand <laughs> a lot of what you're trying to tell me with this story uh, which I've never experienced with a Star Wars movie before you know even things like Rogue One there's a lot of moving parts and it's it's fast paced and everything but I can understand what's on screen yeah. and um, you know this isn't meant to be high obscure avant-garde art I'm supposed <laughs> to be able to understand what's going on and I don't so yeah just came away from it a bit bemused yeah I feel like Rise of Skywalker it's like it works on a surface level you know like it's characters going from place to place you know and they're like chasing after these different objects you know it's full of MacGuffins so if you're watching it and you're not very attached to anything that's happening and you're just paying like quite superficial attention I feel like it works on that level you know 
Um, but I feel like the moment you start to look at stuff like character relationships and motives for why people are doing things and like how it all ties back to what's happened in the previous two films it just quickly collapses and becomes really kind of incoherent and yeah like it's why it's a tricky film to talk about because I can find like certain aspects of Tross that I find quite cool and appealing and interesting in their own right and I think you said similar Kirsty but they just don't like mesh you know it doesn't like ultimately all come together into like a coherent whole at the end and yeah it's why I find it like fascinating to talk about even as it frustrates me you know I have like a very like dualistic relationship with the film yeah I mean you know there's little background characters that I enjoy when they're on screen like Bulio. I'm like oh he's cool <laughs> I mean you know pride is you know and Rich Lee Grant is made for that kind of role. Yeah. But in terms of what it adds to the story, I'm just like, what? <laughs> um, but aside from like the in-universe, like I can't follow the story, I was just like, where the hell is Rose? Yeah. You know, I was, and I still am beyond angry about what they did to Kelly because you can't get away from the real world context of the fact that this actress had been treated absolutely terribly by the Star Wars fandom after The Last Jedi, completely unfairly, was blatantly misogynistic and racist. And, you know, as you said earlier, it was likely that JJ and um, Chris Terrio started writing and kind of planning for this movie before anyone saw The Last Jedi. But after that, you'd think that even even if they had decided, we don't really love this character, um, I, I don't see how they would wouldn't, but like they'd made those choices i would really have liked to have seen some understanding of the importance of finding a way for her to be put back into the narrative in an impactful and important way you know yeah even if that was a choice that they'd initially made you know you've got kelly having to delete her instagram um publicly talking about going to therapy having an op-ed in the new york times about the abuse that she'd been subjected to yeah you trot her out for the entire press tour. You have JJ talking at Celebration about how thankful he was to Ryan for casting her. And then that's what you ultimately do. You don't think anyone's going to notice that or be upset by it? Yeah. I'll never understand that. And I'm still waiting for JJ or Kathleen Kennedy herself to talk about that. Yeah. No, I think of all the things that Trost does, you know, I can laugh pretty much all of it off, you know, because it is just a film you know but the stuff with rose and kelly that's different because it's not just about whether you want to use a character or not in your narrative it's about the message it sends by only giving her like a minute and a half of screen time you know when she was previously like a prominent supporting character it's just unforgivable (laughs) i think Mm -hmm. to be honest like, and especially after those comments that JJ made at Celebration, because having seen the film, they just seem so horribly cynical and disingenuous, you know, and that's really disappointing because, like, obviously all the problems with Tross aside, typically JJ comes across as someone who is reasonably well-intentioned. You know, I don't like to think of him as someone with, like, malicious intent, you know, and I, I don't think he would of like consciously I don't know though it's like I I struggle with it you know it's it just doesn't make sense to me how you could say I'm so grateful for this character and this actress and then just not use her 
you know i just can't compute it so Mm. yeah it upsets me yeah and again it's not just that they don't use her it's that they introduce all of these other characters who then they only go so far with anyway um to take up more of the screen time and you know what's the overall effect of that i only recently came across this quote from chris terrio from the tross art book um he's talking about finn's arc and he says jana's company came about because we thought well where does finn belong First of all, he needs to learn that he's not the only one with a conscience. He's not the only one who said no. His family is Ray and Poe and the Resistance, but he needs to find another family. So he ends up being the leader of the group that said no. For a while, we called them Company 77, which of course plays upon Order 66 and the date of the original film. (laughs) Which of course course it does. (laughs) Can't resist getting those little Easter eggs in there. But what I found interesting about this was that he doesn't mention Rose, who you'd think after The Last Jedi would be the natural new family for Finn if you don't count just Ray and Poe which he acknowledges but says that he needs more than that so it's like well we had to introduce another character for Finn and we just didn't have anyone around it's like what and again nothing against Jana nothing against Naomi Aki's performance I think she's great but it's like you didn't even consider Rose when she was right there and they just shared this kiss at the end and they'd been through this amazing journey together in that movie yeah I I can't understand it and also in terms of Finn, it's basically just them like resetting his arc. You know, yeah. it's like the same arc being repeated like in Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker. And it's a real disservice to Finn too, because it's like, is that honestly all you can come up with for this character? <laughs> you know, he was left in such an interesting place in The Last Jedi, you know, like in a place where he didn't need that, like, who am I? Where do I belong anymore? You know, he was ready to move forward and it's like, that's just ignored. Yeah, the notion that you need Finn to know that he wasn't the only one who said no. Well, one, do you? Like, is that actually necessary? And two, if you're going to make that choice, you need to go a bit further with it in terms of what that ultimately means for the character. And again, like you said, it's very surface level. Like, there's just ultimately not something truly interesting in there for Finn with the Rise of Skywalker. Um, Yeah, it's a pity. Oh gosh. Um, in terms of something where like I have complex feelings about it, like in a way I do like the way that they have Ray be like in this little world of her own. You know, she's often like with her friends, but she's also not with them in a way. You know, she's always like wandering off and like in her own head. You know, and part of me really likes that concept. You know, that obviously she does have this close friendship with like Finn and kind of Poe, I guess. <laughs> But at the same time, like she's still a force user and she still has this connection with Kylo Ren that like keeps on exerting this pull, even though she doesn't particularly understand or want that. And yeah, I think those are all really interesting, good ideas. And I do think the film goes there. It's just it's very like unclear and poorly articulated in terms of what it does with them. It's... Mm. Yeah, it just goes back to that like fundamental muddiness that I think is what we keep coming back to with our reactions to this movie, basically. Yeah, I remember when they were promoting the film, they kept talking about how, you know, the trio were together, but there were these hints that they weren't going to essentially like get along. Mm. And I love that idea because you need conflict to inspire that character growth. But the key element of that in the end is that you resolve it in some way. Yeah. And they never really did. So as you say, it makes emotional sense for Ray to feel distanced from the resistance because she hasn't ultimately found her place yet. But what they do at the end is go, 
and all that stuff doesn't matter anymore, they're gonna hug, and we'll never have a conversation about it. And it's like, wait, what? So you're left with the sense that Raid hasn't truly found a sense of belonging and home because nothing has been bridged. Um, unless they really do think that that is just resolved by a hug that, you know, you don't even have to say anything. And they don't know any of the stuff that she's been through with Kylo and Palpatine. And it just leaves you feeling like she's still distanced in some way. Yeah. Especially with that ending where she's literally by herself. So, you know, the film goes out of its way almost to manufacture conflict. Like in that first interaction between Ray and Poe, we get that these characters do not get along and they're bickering. And then it no- it doesn't go beyond that. Yeah, it's very strange. And like if you think about something like where, for example, Ray's telling Finn about the vision she's had of being upon the throne of the Sith with Kylo Ren, which is funny, but I'm not going to go into that. Um, like, and then it just cuts there. You know, it's used as like a shock moment. You know, when, like for me, I really would have wanted to see that as like a character moment. You know, like, how does Finn respond to that? You know, how does he feel about knowing that's what's going on inside his friend's head? You know, and mm. would that be the point at which you talk about having this like psychic link with Kylo Ren? You know, and all the torment that's caused and all the like complicated feelings she has about him you know that stuff is so interesting but i feel like there's all these opportunities for that like character building and that relationship building and they're just not taken and yeah that's just tross in a nutshell for me it's so many roads (laughs) not taken in so many ways i'm with you like in a way it feels like that leaves potential for the fandom itself to pick up the threads and carry on but in terms of if we take them at face value and think that this is the end of the story and that's really where you're going to leave a character like Finn who had so much promise, who has this amazing actor attached to the role. Uh, You know, he's doing so much work with so little and the film doesn't even really care how Finn feels about those things, you know, those questions that you posed. It's just that, oh, Ray needs a, a character there to talk to but not even really talking not in a satisfying meaningful way mm. the dialogue is really glosses over things yeah no it's annoying like it's most annoying when it comes close to be honest so it's like you were almost there almost then you just missed it it's like, i think they felt this real pressure to tie up a million different things but they also asked a lot of new questions in the process and you know we're going around in circles really and we have been for like over a year at this point because <laughs> the film itself is not going to provide us with the answers it is what it is exactly yeah and i think in terms of revisiting it we both rewatched it for this podcast um and yeah i i feel like i've mostly made peace with the film now you know obviously the rose stuff remains unforgivable you know because of the real impact for kelly and what that says to the fandom that harassed her basically you know i'll never be able to forgive that choice but in terms of the film overall like i can watch it and i can honestly enjoy it for the most part you know and i know that sounds controversial yeah i wouldn't go that far personally yeah (laughs) but like i enjoy it in like a switch in my brain off way because i don't know like i just i like seeing those actors playing those characters you know and yes the characterization is off and includes huge omissions a lot of the time but you know like daisy is so good as ray and john is so good as finn and adam is so good as kylo slash ben and i can just really enjoy seeing 
these people that I've become really attached to over the last few years through my participation in the sequel trilogy fandom. So I don't necessarily like the journeys they were taken on or the outcomes they get from this film, but I still can find a way of enjoying it as an opportunity to spend time with them. Does that make sense? It does. I think for me, it would just be like, well, I'd be more likely to put on one of the other ones that, you know, um, yeah, I've, I've definitely made my piece of what this story does with the characters. Like you, I don't like a lot of the choices made, but they were made. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I do have a growing confidence that this will not be the end of the Skywalker saga. Um, maybe they'll leave it for a good time, but you you already have those lead cast members kind of hinting that they'd be happy to come back. Yeah. And I don't think Lucasfilm would turn that down. Maybe not for another five or ten years, but I don't see it never happening. Exactly. Um, they were just—they were just too good. And I, yeah, I—I I think they know that this is not a super satisfying end to their stories. And I think they—they they had a tall order in that they did take it upon themselves to tie up the rest of the entire saga. I feel like the prequels were sort of brushed aside, aside from some little references here and there, but. In terms of like being a sequel to Return of the Jedi, I think they were going for certain things, whether or not we feel like they worked out well. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, no, I agree with you. I I feel like in terms of like a continuation of those characters' stories, you know, like Ray, Finn and Poe, I feel like in a way the flaws of Tross, they give it a much more stronger impetus to continue telling the story. Right, because... You know, just going off, like, kind of what everyone was theorizing after The Last Jedi, there was this dialogue like, how are they going to move the philosophy of the Force beyond what we've got in the saga so far? Because there's this dialogue going on between the old and the new, and the perception of the Jedi Order is flawed. And of course, it doesn't mean throwing the baby out with the bathwater, because by the end of it, Luke is still like, I won't be the Last Jedi. And you get that shot of Rey lifting the rock. So there's the sense that she will be the Jedi, but. You want to know in what way and how they'll pave the way for a newer version of the Order. Yeah. Kind of an evolution from from that flawed prequel era. And they're still exploring the evolution of that in terms of what we're getting now with the High Republic and everything. So, you know, they, they really didn't go into that much with the Rise of Skywalker. You get the whole be with me thing, but it's not... It, it could have gone so much deeper and could have gone into some really interesting places. So, like you say, the fact that these things aren't explored maybe paves the way for them to be part of Ray's story in the future. But um, as it's presented, this is the definitive ending, and it's just a bit like, wait, what? Yeah. How is she going to be a Jedi all by herself? And is she going to train Finn? And what that? What would that look like? And yeah, it's just a lot of questions left. Yeah, and I think honestly, if we knew that something else were coming, and like I say, we like have reasons to like hope that it will at some point. But if it were like confirmed that don't worry, we are going to get like another f- film about Ray and where she goes next, for example, like I feel like I'd be much more at peace with Tross generally. And I know I just said I'm at peace with it, but you know, questions still nag me about that film, you know, and I'm still like, why, why, why? And I feel like that those things would quieten down a lot if I knew that something else were coming, you know, it's just the void mm. right now. That's a bit frustrating. And honestly, seeing WandaVision recently, that also really opens my eyes to the potential that there might be for much more like rich characterization work with the sequel trilogy characters. Because obviously there's nothing to say that 
like this main sequel trilogy cast would want to do a TV show. That's a huge commitment. But like, if they were, like, that would be such a good way of focusing on that quieter, like, introspective stuff. You know that a movie would hopefully touch on, you know, and have moments about, but wouldn't really be able to linger on. So, like for example, like Ray's feelings about Ben and like the grief about that, you know, and processing that, you know, and actually having conversations with other people about that relationship. You know, I feel like you'd be lucky if you got like a scene in a film about that sort of subject matter. But a TV show could go into like a much deeper exploration. And I'm not saying like a literal WandaVision thing where like Ray brings back an imaginary Ben Solo <laughs> and stuff, you know? But yeah, there's just all these possibilities and that's exciting to me. So I really do hope we get that one day. Yeah, I think it's exciting and frustrating in equal measure because so much of this stuff could have gone into the movie. Like I know you're saying, oh, you might get one or two scenes, but it, it, that was all there for the taking had they chosen to go down those paths you know yeah i don't know it's the thing about trust is that as you say there are lots of things to enjoy like you know what surprised me is that on rewatch i enjoyed the poe and zori interactions quite a lot and Mm -hmm. and 3po you know but they're ultimately they're not the things that i cared about in terms of wrapping up this story whether that's for the sequel trilogy or the entire story of the skywalkers yeah yeah it's, it's quite a strange one it is it's an interesting beast yeah, and I, I kept coming back to some comments that Marianne Brandon, the editor, had after, right after the movie came out in some interviews. She was like, yeah, it's best just to not think about it too much. <laughs> just kind of let it wash over you. And so I think they knew deep down what kind of movie it was. Yeah. Like, in a way, like, and I don't like to say this because I, I am genuinely like angry and upset about the decisions made about Rose and JJ obviously has to be culpable for that to some extent like in a way I do feel sorry for JJ because I think he must know he messed it up on some level you know he must know that the film could have and probably should have been better and I think he probably feels a lot of responsibility for that because he is genuinely a huge Star Wars fan you know and he wouldn't have wanted to like make a film that was as poorly received as Tross was you know, he really probably wanted to make a film that made everyone happy, or at least as close to everyone as possible. It's still not a good film, but I do have some empathy for him, you know, in terms of the difficult situation it was to be brought in a social notice. And it also has to go back to Disney slash Lucasfilm as well for wanting to keep those dates, because I think giving it that extra year could have made all the difference. Yeah, I'm guessing... I mean, I'm I'm not a director, but I think it will be really hard to stay away from reading critic reviews. Yeah, uh, especially on such a a huge project and after the Last Jedi, that was generally pretty acclaimed by the critics. They liked it, right? Yeah. Obviously, the the fan base itself is divided, but um, I would struggle to recall any really positive reviews I read about this movie. Yeah, lukewarm was as good as it got. I think. <laughs> Yeah, unless there were from people who had been crushed by The Last Jedi and at least felt vindicated by some of the choices in this movie. Even if they didn't love the movie itself, they were like, oh, good, they walked back the Ray Nobody thing and, oh, Luke got his hero part and, you know. Yeah, I think I saw that from, like, on some fan discussion forums, but not so much from professional critics. Obviously, they have different priorities and things that they're looking for. Like, And honestly, like... Again, we have inevitably been quite negative about Tross because it's a movie where it disappointed us a lot, just to be truthful. Like, 
if you're listening to this miraculously and you did enjoy it like we are really genuinely glad okay and we don't want to take that away from you and as we've both said there are things in the film and aspects of it that we can enjoy and there's lots of aspects that have a lot of interesting potential but yeah it's just that it didn't come off for us in the end Hmm. yeah but you know it, who knows what they'll do with these characters in the future exactly so and honestly i must say that i think my point about you know like all the like problems with the story of rise of skywalker and all the things that aren't covered or addressed and like all those gaps i think that's both fruitful ground for like any future like tv shows or movies to cover but it's also a big part of why the fandom is still like very much alive because Mm. i do still see like many many like active sequel trilogy fans in my timeline and obviously that's because of how i've curated my timeline you know i follow lots of star wars people but there are still like active discussions about those characters and those stories, you know, and there's still lots of like hope and investment in where they might go next. And there's so yeah. much fan fiction, which is great. So yeah, it's really nice to see that passionate engagement's continued. And to some extent, I think it might have even been fueled by the disappointment <laughs> because people naturally, when they're in fandoms, they want to like redress it, you know, they want to make it right in a way that the actual story didn't. So, yeah, I think that's a powerful motivator for fan works. Even the way that the creators and the actors talk about it, you can f- you can see how they're kind of um, papering over what's there with their headcanons to kind of, like, lift up the emotion and intensity of the movie. So it reflects stuff that isn't quite there in the text, in my opinion. Like, you get conversations from Daisy where she's, She's talking about like, oh, it's such a tragedy that Ben and Ray found each other and then he's gone. And she's like exploring that as a tragedy that that's not what comes across in the movie because the movie's trying to compete that tone with something that's like ultimately a happy ending for Ray. Yeah. And it's like things just kind of get lost in the shuffle of all of these different threads of the story they had to juggle. Yeah. So you wonder like if, you know, if they're taking these headcanons with them it's like could that eventually end up as the text of a new story for these characters yeah like the whole the whole thing with finn's ray i never told you thing (laughs) when they're in the quicksand i still find that such a bizarre addition because that is like a recognizable i've been in love with you this entire time trope yeah you know like that's that's the only way a writer would use that a, a writer who knew what they were doing with that kind of trope <laughs> and that's not what they do with it and then at the end they came out and were like yeah it's because he has force powers which just doesn't ring true emotionally at all yep. even though of course through the rest of the movie you do see that he has force powers so i'm like what's left on the table for finn yeah how does he feel about rose how does he feel about janna you know like it's, it's just like all of these things that are still there to tell Exactly. And can you imagine a version of Tross where, like, we'd, you know, like in Force Awakens, you get, like, separate strands, like, with Ray and Finn, you know, that both of them get a lot of attention. They're both main characters. Like, imagine if early in Tross we'd seen, like, Finn doing, like, subtle Force things, you know, like, so we actually, like, had that, like, impression that, yeah, Finn is Force-sensitive. What's going to happen mm. with that now? You know, what conversations going to be had about that? And then he actually yeah. had conversations with other characters about being Force-sensitive. <laughs> you know, that would be so much better. So as, as it is, it's just barely there. And 
yeah <laughs> sorry yeah there are the whole thing with finn is fascinating because there are so many things that are barely there like if you squint you can see that he still has affection for rose and it's like are we meant to deduce that that's like a background relationship so they are together but you're just not exploring it in this story you know even when she goes back for him and he's like no i'm staying i'm doing this mm. the fact that she has such concern for him i'm like is that meant to be that they're in a relationship but you're not actually going there like it's all very strange yeah but there as you pointed out before they're almost making the point of the fact that it's not like the end of the last jedi when she's in control he's saying no i'm going to do this and then he goes and does it it's <laughs> just yeah fascinating choices yeah <laughs> the parts that are like so on the nose about addressing people's problems with the last jedi they really take me out of the film but are they people's problems or they or are they just the writer's problems you know i'm like are you writing this for the audience or is it just because you didn't like the last movie yeah and and i think it goes back to that point we made in relation to the um rewriting ripley pod and how there's a very loud very noisy sector of fandom that puts out like lots of noisy youtube videos with clickbaity headlines and the sorts of things that tross addresses are in those clickbaity headlines basically yeah like the holdo thing exactly like the holdo (laughs) thing like um like how dare rose like prevent finn from like nobly sacrificing his life to save the resistance even though that wouldn't have been what happened and how dare ray use the skywalker saber yeah exactly (laughs) and all ray's a merry sue because she's not related to anyone oh we fixed that you know like all these things like mm. I, I think part of it just comes back to paying attention to the wrong people, you know, and thinking, oh wow, there's a YouTube video of three hundred thousand views. That must mean everyone feels this way. And it's like, no, they don't. It's just not everyone makes these shitty YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I should like impose a lifetime ban on me talking about YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm still less sure of the direct relationship between all of that stuff and what jj chose to do yeah but whether it's conscious or not it did play into those perceptions and i think that's ultimately what's going to matter because as we talked about in our episodes about the last jedi what was really exciting to critics and fans alike at that point was like the sense of possibility with the direction of star wars and like wow we're going into the future both in the story and in terms of like you know the the conversation that surrounds it and it felt like Tross was a step back whether that was their intent or not it just said it felt like they were retreating to the safety of well we'll do something that's pretty similar to Return of the Jedi you know mm. whereas Ryan really took them up to the horizon where they could have done something that went beyond um the frameworks that we've seen for Star Wars stories before yeah so hopefully we get more Ryan Johnson-esque stories going forward and fewer JJ ones <laughs> And, and honestly, I am really grateful for what JJ did in kickstarting the sequel trilogy. Okay, okay. so I don't want to like make it sound like I don't value what he brought to it at all. But I think just in terms of what you were saying about that more like conservative bend, you know, and about like skewing closely to what's previously been done in Star Wars. Like, I think we need less of that. We need more risk taking and boldness going forward. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what JJ does with projects whether they're star wars or not in future like whether he'll kind of take anything away from this or he'll double down because he he said things before the movie came out like oh the last jedi inspired him to take risks and i'm just wondering where those were (laughs) what does he see as a risk yeah some of the choices are a bit wacky but um not in the 
way that the choices in The Last Jedi are, like, bold, you know, like, um, mm. yeah. It's an interesting film. Interesting. Um, okay, we need to run this out soon, but um, before we go, I wanted to make sure we addressed um, a message that we had on Twitter. Okay, yep, so this um, tweet is from Panji Bustos. So they said, do you think we will see Ben Solo again in a comic or in a novel, alive or false ghost? I don't care. I miss him. Oh. <laughs> I miss him <laughs> too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, same. I agree with Kirsty. Like, at the very least, you're going to see like him in novels and stuff. Like, I think that's almost a guarantee. And I think they'd be stupid if they didn't. Because I think Ben Solo is such a popular character, you know everyone is still talking about that character people are still so passionate and care so much about that character you know i think people would turn out for his return in whatever form that might be in droves would just be like a no-brainer to bring him back basically yeah i was disappointed with a lot of what they did i haven't talked about kylo too much because i do think in general he's probably one of the characters best served by the rise of skywalker but mm. i still feel like he was used for a lot of exposition <laughs> yes <laughs> That's uh, very true. you can do a lot more interesting things with that character but um yeah i do think that it would be very strange decision to never bring him back and especially in a franchise where everyone is brought back eventually um i guess it's a question of whether we can expect to see him sooner in stories that go into the past rather than the future mm. And whether that's something that you want, because I'm kind of torn about that stuff now in light of the fact that we know the end of the story, at least up to this point, that we've been told is the end of the story. So, you know, ultimately, what kind of story are you trying to tell if you choose to go into the past where, you know, I, I guess maybe actually what you want to do there is tell stories about Han and Leia. And of course, Ben would be alive, so he'd be there. But would the story really be about Ben, you know? Mm, yeah. This is the thing about franchise storytelling. The more you add in these little gaps and pieces, the more you dilute the intent of parts that exist elsewhere. Yeah, that's a good point. It's for this reason that I have a bit of, jumping to something else, I have a bit of concern about the Kenobi thing with Anakin and um, Obi-Wan interacting again before A New Hope. It's like, you have to tread really carefully because those things have meaning within the narrative that already exists. Yeah, and if you if you go back and just add in like, and here's Ben's life, it's like unless you are willing to actually go there and pursue the very depressing reality that you chose to have Palpatine manipulating this kid from the beginning, that all leads up to the rise of Skywalker, and haha, I made up your previous master, and haha, I set the temple on fire, and haha, like all of this stuff was me. Unless you're actually going for the whole, it was Agatha all along, <laughs> with an intent. <laughs> You know, like, yeah. does that matter? Then it's just kind of depressing and nihilistic almost, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's tricky, isn't it? Like, so I am personally really interested in, like, stories about a younger Ben Solo. But I agree that it's going to be a very tricky balancing act. So I feel like, I don't know, I can't see how, like, doing, like, a cutesy, oh, look, it's little 10-year-old Ben going on adventures... You know, I feel like I'd be watching that and thinking that poor baby has a life of tragedy ahead of him. <laughs> you know, like, but yeah, I think it, it would all depend on like who they get in to do it. And I'd want to hear comments from them that would make me trust them, you know, in terms of how they view that character, what they want to say with the character's story. Because I feel like 
you're right there's a real risk of diluting the impact of what should be the core stories like by extending the characters arcs like that but there's also the potential uh, like to enhance them like in other ways if the story is really well done so like i know that many people love anakin as a character so much more because of the clone wars um and honestly ben doesn't really need rehabilitating and i obviously is subjective to the prequels you know lots of people loved those films from the beginning and i don't mean to erase that you know but for some of the people who did have criticisms and maybe like objected to certain aspects of how anakin was characterized in the films for those people seeing anakin play out in a much more extended format in the clone wars that really helped them to build that attachment to the character it shows that it can be done well but yeah who's who's to say what could be done with ben basically um i think for me the bigger question is what happens to the character going forward you know does he like just stay like dead stay a false ghost or is there a, like any hope of like being resurrected from beyond the grave and I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I, I would lean towards like just staying dead because I just don't see Adam Driver coming back for a long, long time. But yeah, who knows? And if you resurrect him again, to what purpose? Like unless that plays into Ray's arc significantly. Yeah. I think it's, it's it really hard to move forward without them acknowledging and addressing some of the issues that they made with the Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. You know, you chose to separate these characters who had just come together, had a romance of your doing. <laughs> this is baffling. Again, I wouldn't have minded it so much if you just explored the fact that that was a personal tragedy for Ray, but it's glossed over entirely. Yeah. So it's interesting, like, and I feel like we could do a longer discussion about this, but it's interesting to think about it in comparison to WandaVision, because... Like, you've seen the films, like, with Wonder and Vision prior to Wonder Vision, right, Kirsty? You've seen, like, Infinity War and Civil War, have you? I don't think I've seen the Ultron one, but I've seen most of them. Okay, yeah. So, in the movies, you get snippets of those characters' relationships, but they're tiny, tiny snippets. I'd say their collective screen time together across, like, four films. No, actually, I think it's three films. But it's maybe, like, between five and ten minutes, you know, across three whole movies. You know, they are right. not central to those films at all. You know, it's not like a key relationship. And in that way, you know, when Wanda loses vision in Infinity War, there is some very, very brief follow up on that in Endgame. You know, there's a conversation she has with Thanos about how you've taken everything from me. And then at the end, she has a conversation with Hawkeye about having lost people and being sad. But it feels like gloss you know like it's these tiny moments they don't really amount to much in the context of those films and then WandaVision is brilliant because it takes like that character's situation which was never really investigated or explored in any meaningful way in the films because that's just not what they're about and it made that the complete crux of that show you know and that's what I was going on about earlier where seeing something like WandaVision makes me excited because it shows that they are willing to go to that subject matter and take it seriously yeah but those are as you said very minor characters in those films where we already got ray and ben's story it just wasn't given a satisfying ending in a lot of people's ideas do you know what i mean i know what you mean yeah like it was the story they had their chance to tell it yeah (laughs) they stuck the landing for most of it it's the very end it's mixed on whether that is okay for people and again, on paper, 
I could have been okay with them choosing to have Ben die if it had mattered to Ray, and they just didn't. They didn't go there. Yeah. And if there is any sort of follow up to that in a TV show or a movie, I think that's what it needs to address. You know, what was the impact of that? Because I won't accept the answer being nothing, and that's the answer that Rise of Skywalker gives, isn't it? You know. <laughs> yes, and that's why. We're that's just... why we're pissed off and annoyed, <laughs> so, among many other in reasons. Purgatory. But, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, have Ray and Rose form some kind of relationship, please, and have that explored. Oh God, yes. Honestly, that picture of Ray and Rose in the same frame from the deleted scene still haunts me. I still Did see they not that. Realize like, when they gave us that that female fans especially would be like, "Oh, finally, Ray is going to have a friend." Yeah, Ray doesn't have female friends. Yes, obviously she has Finn. I'm not diminishing that relationship, but Star Wars is not very good giving us female friendships yeah. i think the closest we get is a scene in solo between kira and l3 so this would have actually been a huge deal you know the last jedi did a lot with leia and holdo in those very small moments but again it's just like that would have been significant to ray and rose who lost her sister so i i, I wonder if they even realized that that meant something to people when we were like given that as an indication of something we'd get in the movie and what that scene in the end really was about i think it's in the novelization mm. man did you have to cut that yeah no it really sucks Some, and it's like come on like just just for a sp- like and they couldn't even put on the bloody blu-ray <laughs> like... and again these things wouldn't have necessarily made the movie good sure you know in an objective sense if there is such a thing but they would have given people like some comfort like okay well at least they recognize that that character would have been important there and you know so yeah exactly so i'll continue dreaming about that ray and rose relationship (laughs) because i just need that in some form like i'll even take a book you know because i i would completely understand like if kelly never wanted to participate in Star Wars again you know like that's absolutely like understandable and makes complete sense given what she's been through I would love it if she did because I'd love to see like a new project with Rose where she's actually given centrality again. I'll just take anything, you know, Star Wars can tell stories in lots of different media. So there's absolutely nothing stopping them from telling that sort of story if they want to. Mm. Okay, so that has been a long, slightly rambly conversation, but hopefully people did find it interesting. Um, I feel like this is probably going to be the last time for a while that we talk about sequel trilogy stuff, just because we need to keep ourselves refreshed and... There's like a mountain of books that we need to catch up on. Yeah, well, now we're in like a post-Tross landscape. Is How do you feel about the fandom now? Like, and and how do you feel about where Lucasfilm is going with the, the stories that are kind of on the docket for the immediate future? Or I guess a lot of them we don't really know details about. They're just kind of hinted at them. Yeah, like um, I think we went into it in the like episode we had on all the announcements. You know, they announced a bunch of projects at once. Um, and yeah, like I have varying levels of excitement for them. You know, like I'm very, very hyped for the Acolyte. That looks very promising to me. Um, I'm also really excited for the Book of Boba Fett, <laughs> which I never thought I would say <laughs> because it's like it's Boba Fett. I never used to care about him. But I just love the vibe of that like stinger at the end of The Mandalorian Season 2. So I'm really looking forward to that. Like I'm really enjoying the High Republic books I'm reading. Like they seem very promising. And I love that 
freedom that those books have you know just to tell completely new stories you know that just exist in their own right and they're not beholden to any of the drama that happens in the films you know I'm really finding that very refreshing so yeah like I have a lot of excitement like I feel like it's a bit weird because obviously before we were operating with like a strict schedule you know it's like every two years we get a sequel trilogy film you know and that's what Mm -hmm. we were building towards and structuring ourselves around but I still love this world and I still enjoy talking about it so yeah I'm still here (laughs) how about you Kirsty? Yeah, I'm enjoying The High Republic as well. I really hoped that I would because after the sequel trilogy ended, I was like, oh, I need my new thing. Yeah. Um, And I I think that has potential. And I do wonder if that's going to kind of feed into The Acolyte because we've heard that that's going to be set in the past, right? Like pre-prequel era. Yes. That might connect. That'd be really cool if it does. Like, I think they might have actually said it does. I'd need to go back and find the quotes, but yeah. I'm not sure if they have officially. I think they're maybe just rumours. Okay. But... Um, yeah, the Boba Fett stuff does intrigue me as well because I I like what we've had of him in um, the Mandalorian, um, and I think there are a lot of questions in terms of where they could go with that character. Like I want them to go deeper, but this is their opportunity to do that, so we'll just see um, whether they do. Uh, I like the character of Fennec as well, but again, we've only had a very surface look at her so far, so we'll see. And while I wasn't the biggest fan of Mando season two, I loved season one. Yeah. And I'm hoping that season three gets back to that point for me where they're not feeling the need to set up all of these other shows and they can kind of just focus on Din. Yeah. Because <laughs> they do have all of these interesting things now about him having the Darksaber and the, the conflict of him now being separated from Grogu. So I have hope for season three. Yeah, no same. So I feel like... Like, there were pleasures to be had in season two of The Mandalorian. But frog Lady. Yes, exactly. Frog Lady, <laughs> the icon, the legend. But yeah, like, overall, it just did feel like a like showcase of different famous faces and stars, you know? And that's all well and good, but that's not what I liked about the show initially. So yeah, when it goes back to Din and starts picking up on his story again and hopefully has him take off the mask more. Pedro is so good, you know? Yeah take advantage of that yes i think apart from the iconic frog lady episode which you just can't be that my favorite episode of season two was that penultimate episode because yeah that was the one that was most about din you know and like where he was at and showing his humanity and yeah more of that please there's also the episode where he meets Bo-Katan and she reveals to him that he was raised in a cult. Yeah, And it's like, are you going to do anything interesting with that, please? So I, again, I hope that feeds into season three because that is really interesting. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there is lots of stuff to look forward to. And I know there's also The Bad Batch coming soon, which I'm a bit conflicted about whether to watch because I still haven't watched The Clone Wars. Oh, I think you could dive right in. I'm going to watch it. Okay. Um, I think I'm on season five of The Clone Wars now, so I don't have too much hope that I'm going to finish it by that point. Right. But I think, you know, with the WandaVision thing, I really enjoyed just having something weekly to watch and then kind of going on Twitter to see what people were saying about it. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that could apply to The Bad Batch too. So I think we should just maybe give it a go. Okay, cool. Well, you're winning me over, Kirsty. I might give it a try after all. (laughs) And if it doesn't work for you, you can drop it. But it's kind of fun to start it when everyone else is. Yeah. Right? No, definitely. So voice, yeah, the conversation gets a bit stale, doesn't it? And it's like turning up to a party five days late and just finding the discarded rubbish everywhere. 
I really enjoy things that feel more like event television of of years past, you know. Exactly. I know it's old fashioned at this point, but it's like that water cooler vibe, isn't it? It's just really nice. I I think a lot of people are missing that in the age of streaming. So the fact that Disney Plus do that and HBO as well, I, I think the whole Netflix model is almost becoming passe where people are like part of the appeal of it is sharing it with other people and having something to talk about yeah so okay but i think it's probably time to wrap it up so yeah i really enjoyed having that conversation kirsty so thank you very much me too i kind of feel like we are leaving the sequel trilogy at this point (laughs) you know at least for the purposes of the pod like we're not leaving the sequel trilogy fandom that's kind of our home in the star wars fandom yeah we love it exactly love the friends we've made we love all the fanfic and art and everything but there's not, at this point, unless they announce new stories with these characters or if JJ came out with a big bombshell explanation about something, or, <laughs> you know, there's not that much more to discuss. Exactly. We've kind of gone over these stories at this point. Yeah. So we're taking a break from it and we'll be back with the High Republic stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and as Kirsty said, we're not like definitively saying we're never going to talk about it again. And as part of the novelization series, we presumably we'll hit the sequel trilogy novelizations at some point but yeah but who knows when that will be and yeah in the meantime we have lots of other cool stuff to talk about which we hope you'll join us for so yep i'm rachel and you can find me on twitter at rachel1918 i'm kirstie and you can find both of us on twitter at scavengers horde until next time bye bye